0: Welcome back to the Outcomes Rocket. This program is made possible by the sponsors of Reach, including HP, Microsoft, Smooth Podcasting, and listeners like you. Reach is a global nonprofit social impact organization whose mission is to create better healthcare experiences for both providers and patients. REACH is focused on sustainable, large-scale improvements in the delivery of care and in the health journey of all people. REACH advocates public health thought leadership, education, and innovation. Be sure to share this podcast and visit them at www.ReachTL.org. That's www.ReachTL.org. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have the privilege of hosting Dr. Evan Muse. Dr. Muse is a physician scientist with research interests that mind the transition zone of digital medicine, genomics, and cardiovascular disease. After his undergraduate studies in biochemistry at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, he completed his medical and graduate studies at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. Following internship and residency in internal medicine at the Columbia University Medical Center, New York Presbyterian Hospital, he completed his training in cardiology at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland, and Scripps Clinic in La Jolla, California. As he served as a judge for both the Qualcomm Tricorder Prize and IBM Watson AI XPRIZE competitions. He also sits on the Strategic Advisory Board for Digital Medicine Society and as an associate editor for the Nature Partner Journal, Digital Medicine. He's currently the lead for cardiovascular genomics at the Scripps Research Translational Institute, and he's a cardiologist and assistant program director for research of the Cardiovascular Disease Fellowship Program at the Scripps Clinic in La Jolla. It's such a privilege to have had the discussion with Evan on his work with cardiovascular genomics and the impact that they can have to public health and population health overall. And so I think you're really going to enjoy this interview with Dr. Muse. I hope you enjoy. So it's such a privilege to have you here with us, Evan. Thanks so much for joining. Saul, it's a real honor. It's uh, great to be here. So we're going to dive into some really fascinating work that you've done and really, you know, focused around the work at Scripps Clinical Medical Group and Research Translational Institute. But before we dive into that and sort of the impact at the population health level, I'd like to hear a little bit more about what inspires your work in healthcare. Yeah, that's I love
1: people. So, you know, probably like yourself, you get to talk to people every day, you know, learn new things and be inspired. And I think that that's what is at the core of what keeps me going, you know, as a physician, you know, uh, being able to help individuals discover things about themselves, work through highs, work through lows. And that then translates as a scientist in terms of trying to think, well, what tools do we have? And what things do we not know yet? What's the best way for us to set up a good trial or experiment or tap into certain data points for us to being able to achieve individual goals, right? Whether that's disease prevention for disease management. And so it's a real, real honor to be able to have this sort of relationships that I do, not only with my patients, but with the research teams and organizations that I'm a part of.
0: Well, it's certainly outstanding work that you're up to and you know, the drive, you know, for people, we want to have that impact. And that's why we've chosen healthcare. And so around population health, and I mean, the work that you're doing in cardiovascular genomics is super fascinating. And the promise that that could mean for the country and the world, what would you say is the way that you guys are adding value to the healthcare ecosystem in that respect?
1: You know, you bring up cardiovascular genomics and that's a big plus. I mean, so much has been going on in this space, but it's not well utilized. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so I think that one of the things that we're trying to do is leverage these existing technologies that we have right now for big wins that then we can then use those to shape the future, okay, of prevention and treatment, et cetera. So if we think of something like statins, right? Torvastatin, resuvastatin, simvastatin. A lot of folks that end up having high cholesterol or risk factors for plaques within their arteries that then go on to cause stroke and heart attack, right? Take statins. Well, the number needed to treat for primary prevention, meaning how many individuals... Do I have to put on a certain medication to prevent one outcome is greater than we would like it to be, right? I think mm-hmm. number needed to treat for primary prevention depends on the study 40 to 70, right? Treat mm-hmm. those individuals for a period of years to be able to prevent one adverse event. So, what if you're the 59th individual, right? And you're taking this medication for 10 years. That's frustrating to know that maybe you haven't gotten the benefit that you thought you were going to get, right? Oh, without a doubt. I think that what we're seeing in cardiovascular genomics, the way polygenic risk scores are helping us to then delineate what our inborn risks are, and really brilliant studies done from groups at the Brigham and elsewhere have helped us understand that stratifying individuals based on their polygenic risk for coronary disease can help us understand and actually move the needle in terms of the number needed to treat to reduce that amount. So if you were in the highest tier of this polygenic risk, then you would most likely receive a benefit greater than that if you're in the lowest tier. So we are embarking on several studies to utilize polygenic risk scores in coronary disease. I was lucky enough to do a a nice study with atrial fibrillation polygenic risk. You know, atrial fibrillation is one of these, is the most common sustained arrhythmia Mm -hmm. that we have in man. I'm sure that you've heard people with atrial fibrillation and blood thinners, right?
0: Mm -hmm. AFib
1: and blood thinners, yep. And no one wants to be on a blood thinner if they don't have to be. And AFib is such a debilitating disease for some folks, but it's also somewhat preventable. With certain lifestyle modifications, right? Mm-hmm. So, if I were to tell you, Saul, you know what, you have the highest genetic risk of getting AFib over time, meaning that you're three times as likely as someone in the lower genetic risk, okay? And that means that you need to watch your weight, you know, maybe get your sleep apnea under control, moderate your alcohol consumption, pay attention to your blood pressure, then you may be more inspired right, to really be on top of these preventative measures than you would be otherwise. At the same time, a lot of people present with atrial fibrillation to the clinic with their first event being a massive stroke, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, with the kind of digital technologies that we have, like single lead and, and six lead electrocardiograms that fit on our iPhones and smartphones, et cetera, maybe if you were in the highest polygenic risk, And this hasn't been studied yet, but, you know, postulating that if you're in the highest polygenic risk of AFib, then maybe you would monitor more often for signs of atrial fibrillation so you do not then present with a stroke as your first diagnosis.
0: It becomes really promising in that way. And at the very beginning, you mentioned underutilized. And so How do we unlock that, Evan, and how do we maximize that as we look to large systems to care for populations or even employers, right, seeking to provide preventative care and the best outcomes for their employees? Absolutely. I think it starts by education, educating not only
1: patients, right, that genetics can be used in an informative way, especially for coronary disease, it's been shown that even if you're in the highest polygenic risk of coronary disease if you have your risk factors under control you're not essentially doomed right right and so they could be empowering and the same thing goes for helping and educating patients but needs to go for the physicians as well right most docs are overworked and now with EHR you know you add on a genomic component and there's ethical considerations and risks and a certain amount of not being have that part of their core training right? So I think that we need to do better in terms of bringing those to the real world for not only our patients, but
0: also our docs and PAs and NPs as well who are on the front lines. Yeah, that's a great call out. Just focusing on education and then enabling people to apply these powerful technologies and methods, how would you say the approach, and maybe we could focus this at the Research Institute or perhaps the work being done at the medical group, but how are you guys doing things differently that has helped you guys get results in the populations you serve?
1: Yeah, so I guess it's trying to reach the right people and ask the right questions with the technologies that we have at hand, right? We want to increase access, increase the amount of underrepresented individuals in research, make sure that the underserved can be a part of research and also get this information as well. That's a big drive that we're doing with a lot of our remote digital trials, right? Kind of moving outside of the ivory towers of academia and trying to go directly into patients in their own environment and have them be participants and active partners in the research process, right? So I think that that's one of our major drives, whether we're doing it in diabetes studies, sleep studies, you know, whatnot. It's really trying to um, improve access for patients to be a part of these trials and discover their own personal risks as
0: well. And so, and, and I can really appreciate that, right? I mean, it is about the right people, the right questions, giving access. How do you get to that? You know, I mean, I feel like that tends to be a challenge for a lot of us.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I don't know if I have the answer to that right now, right? Mm -hmm. The clinical trial space is evolving. And, you know, from being, okay, it's just with a research coordinator and a face-to-face visit, and now being able to use social media or patient education networks to go directly to potential participants in those studies. And we have to be able to, I guess, provide a value added for them, right? Right. Oftentimes, clinical trials, you're reading the inclusion exclusion criteria and you're going through the informed consent form. And it says, well, what is this going to do for you? And the answer oftentimes is nothing, right? And so he said, like, well, I'm. It's, it's just a one-way data suck from the patients to the scientists. But you know what we're trying to do is now involve their participants as partners and make sure that we're delivering some sort of insight at each part of a clinical research project as we can to make sure that those folks stay involved, stay engaged, and that there is value added for those folks as well, not just us writing the papers totally. and putting together the science, et cetera.
0: Totally. Yeah, it's that sensitivity, right? It's a two-way street. You know, one of the things that I admire about you and your work is sort of the the way that you approach patients as consumers. And I think that's what makes you a very forward thinker and and your approach more modern. How would you say maybe an example of how the methods you and your team use has improved outcomes or better business models in healthcare?
1: Yeah, well, we're starting to figure that out,
0: right? So one of
1: those ways is, as I mentioned, you know, having the participants be a part of the research projects, right? Having them be invested fully, right? And so we'll see if that plays out. We'll see if that pays off. We all know that, you know, one of our big strengths is uh, using uh, digital tools and digital technologies to kind of take these things that are previously just been relegated to hospitals and specialty care clinics to now give patients access to those in their homes, right? But just like Fitbit, right, which was sometimes folks have wear for a couple months or any kind of activity tracker, and then they drop it only to come back to it after a couple years or so, right? We want to make sure that folks don't have device fatigue, which is a real thing. All of us in this time have a little bit of Zoom fatigue. Yeah, it was a nice shiny object and allowed us to really get back to productivity and meeting with folks. But now at this stage in the game, we're a little standoffish, right? So we have to continually Rethink our approaches in terms of how do we get long-term participation
0: in studies to really then glean insights from that data, right? Sure. Now that makes a lot of sense, Evan. And and just it still t- time will tell. But the reality is, patients seek that involvement. They want to be part of it. I mean, let me just say we, right? Because we're all members of this healthcare space, and we'd rather be engaged than just you know a one-way data suck. So I appreciate the approach there. I think with time, we'll probably most likely see that the results are better. If you had to identify any area where potentially there there was a setback that you learned something incredibly valuable from in the efforts that you conduct, Evan, what would you say that is? Well, I I would say,
1: number one, you can't boil the ocean, right? You can't Mm -hmm. try to do too much too quickly without understanding the ecosystem, right? And so... You don't want to move at a snail's pace, right? But uh, make sure that at each step along the way, when trying something new, that you have good, the ability to feedback, change, and then act on those edits and see if they're successful, right? To be able to model at each step along the way. I think the second thing is building good teams. And that's one of the things that, you know, I'm very lucky with my colleagues at Scripps Research Translational Institute. You know, we built a research ecosystem basically with genomicists, digital medicine experts, patient engagement, AI analytics, as well as our clinicians and research coordinators. So everything is together and we get to meet and discuss everyone's perspectives to make sure that. At each step along the way, we're really uniting and bringing a specific trial or question, answering it to its fullest in the most efficient and best way.
0: Yeah, you know, and you really can't boil the ocean. And you mentioned something, understanding the ecosystem. There's a lot of technology companies entering the space that feel like they could disrupt And the reality is, it's not that easy. And you really have to understand the ecosystem, partner with physicians like Dr. Muse, and be able to build those teams to deliver results. And the neat thing is that more physicians like you, Evan, are having a front seat in what innovation looks like and how we're transforming delivery of care. And that to me is very exciting, but there's a lot of exciting things happening in healthcare along with challenges. What would you say is one of the things you're most excited about?
1: You know, I think one of the most exciting things for me is just understanding the data, doing the right sort of analytics, getting insights from that data, and then transitioning it to a point where a patient, an individual, a company, whatever, can then utilize that for improved outcomes overall, right? I think what we're seeing is now that every person is producing so much data about their lives, a lot of that, you know, even the way we swipe and talk on our cell phones, how fast our keystrokes are, what apps we use, et cetera, have been shown to be digital biomarkers for cognition and mental health. And so just in the background, there's so much data that we are producing. But for me to take a paper chart and open it and then try to distill that down to an actual item, it's... Previously, you know, I can't do that, right? And so now using better analytic methods, AI and other tools, I think that we're able to then learn from those and then act at really highest point, right? For our patients and colleagues.
0: It certainly is promising and and exciting. You know, I mean, I recently got an Apple Watch and the little things that the watch could do for you to breathe better or even understand what you're doing is just incredible. And to your point, like keystrokes and how quickly you do things. I mean, it's so promising and it's just a matter of how do we use it, right? And, and it's great to have somebody like you and your team and the many across the country that are working to make this better and scalable for us to benefit from. Certainly a fascinating discussion that I know we could dive in so much deeper. And again, you know, the discussion around how we impact populations is exciting but we're here at the end. <laughs> and so, oh, no. um, Dr. Muse, what conclusion would you give us and what closing thought can you leave us with? And then with that, an invitation for the listeners to continue to learn more about you and the work that you're up to.
1: Well, you know, I think it's uh, being brave and trying new things, but also knowing that what we do affects others continually, right? And so I think that as we evolve our clinical trial space and start to utilize novel data sources, sensors, genomics, et cetera. We also have to understand the power of this data and the appropriate ways to protect it, to be upfront and then to use it in the right ways to benefit humanity. You know, folks can uh, join me on Twitter at Evan Muse, send me direct messages or on LinkedIn. Happy to start a conversation that way.
0: Outstanding, Evan. Again, just wanna say thank you. The polygenic risk scores, I mean, building strong teams and not boiling the ocean, just tip of the iceberg of all the work that you're up to. But we really appreciate you sharing your insights here with us and definitely looking forward to staying in touch with you. Happy to be here, Saul. I really enjoyed it. This program is made possible by the sponsors of REACH, including HP, Microsoft, Smooth Podcasting, and listeners like you. REACH is a global nonprofit social impact organization whose mission is to create better healthcare experiences for both providers and patients. REACH is focused on sustainable, large-scale improvements in the delivery of care and in the health journey of all people. REACH advocates public health thought leadership, education, and innovation. Be sure to share this podcast and visit them at www.ReachTL.org. That's www.ReachTL.org.